God invites us to bring our requests to Him. He wants us to ask for things. How do we properly bring our requests before God without becoming entitled or demanding? The Bible actually tells us how to bring our requests to God in prayer. See, there is a right way to pray that will yield the most results spiritually and eternally. God wants to answer the prayers of His people. But do we know how to ask? And do we know what to ask for? That's what we'll be exploring right now. Well, this is episode 11 in this series all about prayer. If you have not watched the last 10 episodes, you don't have to. I encourage you to do that. It'd be wonderful if you did that. But you don't have to. Um, I'm just going to explain as best as I can uh, today's message all about how to pray in Jesus' name. And there's so much that goes into into this idea of approaching God, how, learning how to ask in prayer, learning how to petition. We all have requests to be uh, transparent and honest. We all have requests. We all have desires of God. We all have uh, things we want Him to do. How do we ask Him for things? What is the best way to approach God with our requests? Uh, prayer defined, if you were to define prayer biblically, um, the best way I've come to understand prayer in a succinct definition, I've taken this from John Piper and reworked it a little bit, but I would encourage you to write this down if I were you. Uh, It says, I wrote down, prayer is talking to God with intention and with purpose as his beloved child and according to his word. If you didn't catch those three components of prayer, I'll say it again. Prayer is talking to God and you go, that's it. No, with intention and purpose, component number one, as his beloved child, component number two. And according to his word, meaning the word of God informs how I approach God, how I pray, um, my prayers, um, the way I understand prayer, the word of God informs all these things. So it's according to his word. And you go, why should I pray? Why should I waste my time talking to God that I don't even know if he's there? Because God has determined prayer to be the method of causing certain things in our life and in our world. There are many things God has decided will not happen without his people praying and asking for these things to happen. And they're not imperative. They're not necessary for his greater plan to move forward. But there are some things God has decided this won't happen unless someone prays and asks me to do this. So God has determined prayer to be the method of causing certain things in our life and in our world. And to be frank, some of us are missing out on prayer requests or just aren't seeing the power of God in our life or just aren't getting what it is that we're believing for because maybe we don't know how to pray. Maybe we don't know the right approach to prayer and and the kind of heart we're supposed to have. So this is going to be less about the language to use in prayer and, and what should I say and how should I say it. That's not the big concern when it comes to praying. The, the, the main concern, as far as I've read in scripture, the main concern, yes, your requests matter and how you say things and, and what you're asking for, but what matters most is your heart, posture, your attitude, your approach, and your mentality in prayer. See, God invites us to ask for things um, in prayer because God values partnership. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. They go, why would God ask me to pray for things that he intends to do and he's not going to do those things unless his people ask because God invites us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Our whole relationship with God, this whole world is centered around friendship and partnership and God deeply values that. He wants people, human image bearers of God to partner with him and part of the way we partner with God is through prayer. So that when I ask, God answers. Not to say that my prayer is the reason that happened, but God has ordained to work through my request. And all glory and credit goes to him. Let me take you to John 15 verse 7 to start our time. We talked about asking and praying in Jesus' name. If you didn't watch that episode, go watch that. 
Um, if you're confused on what is the name of God, I'm so confused. There's so many names of God and there's so many ways people talk about God. And what's his name? How do we pray in his name? Go watch that episode. It'll clarify. But I'm going to assume you at least have, a, 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 I don't know, a general enough understanding and a foundation uh, to understand what it is I'm about to say. John 15, 7, Jesus says in the upper room to his disciples, Judas the bum has already left. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you there is a condition if you abide in me and my words abide in you those are two conditions ask whatever you wish and it what you're asking for will be done for you right here it will be done for you well what are the conditions abide in me condition number one and my words abide in you and we'll talk about this in episodes to come and you're going, we're 11 episodes in. What the heck? How many episodes are there? It's like 16. <laughs> so when Jesus talks about praying, God invites us to pray in his name, to pray for things that he intends to do that is according to his will and according to his plan and according to his word and according to his character. And part of the, the way that we begin to pray those things and ask for things that God intends to answer is by abiding in God prior to our prayer and our life is summed up by abiding in him and having his word abide in us. Those are two helpful things I would encourage you to start doing. Abide in him and let his word abide in you if you want to begin seeing your prayers answered. And this is not about manipulating the hand of God or, or moving God to do what we want as if he's just, if I can just turn him just enough, I can manipulate his hand to give me whatever I, I ask for. This is about actually us changing the way that we see the world and understand life so that we are aligned with what it is God wants to do in the world. This isn't moving God's hand. This is actually God prompting and moving our own hearts and our own ways of thinking. Philippians 4, 6. The Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. This is sadly how most even believers live their life. They're anxious about everything. But instead of doing that, here's what we should do. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See the requesting aspect. See the, the way that we make our requests known is through prayer and supplication. And thanksgiving is, a, is supposed to be part of that. So if you want to begin approaching God properly and praying for things biblically and, and learning how to pray for things in a way that accords with his will, start with thanksgiving. Let the word of God inform how you think of God, how you approach him, how you see the world. And instead of being anxious and letting anxieties and pressures of life drive you into the ground, let recognize that anxiety, recognize the pressure around you, and let that drive you to the throne of God to bring your requests, your fears, your stresses, and your anxieties to God. There are three things I want you to know today about asking for things. And this might be, um, I don't know, this might be something that you're... Uh, like, this is common knowledge. This is elementary. I learned this in kindergarten, in my Christian school. That's great. But when it comes to understanding the deeper things of God, the way we progress into more complex, complicated theological ideas and understandings is by having a firmer grasp on the basics and the foundational ideas. We never move on from the foundational truths. We never move on from the basics or the elementary doctrines. We actually grow up into these things. We're to mature in these things. We're to better understand these things. And so I want to give you three, I believe, essential keys 
to reframing how we pray and bring our requests to God. Because when I say, let your requests be made known to God, each of us sees and understands that differently. We might define that differently. Let your requests be made known to God. Some of us do that with fear. Some of us let our requests known to God and we bring those to God with a sense of entitlement. Some of us has, have doubt and fears and, and stress and, I don't know, what is, condemnation that leaks into our prayer time so that as we're letting our requests be made known to God, we leave more anxious and afraid and fearful than when we walked into our prayer, prayer time. And I, I don't want that for you. So there are three things just to give you guys a basic general outline for where we're going today. Number one, we need to trust in the finished work of Christ. When Jesus says, pray in his name, and I'll show you this in John 16. I'll pull it up for you so you can read it while I'm talking. In John 16, when Jesus says, pray in my name, or John 14 and 15, pray in my name, pray in my name. Part of that means we are trusting in the finished work of Jesus. That is like the majority of what he means. The second thing when it comes to approaching God properly and asking God for things biblically is that we ask in humble confidence and faith. There should be not just confidence and not just humility, but both. We should pair these things. Be humble. Be Approach God with a sense of uh, meekness. And I understand who I am in light of you. And, and I humbly make my request made known to you. But I'm confident. Based on what though? That's what we'll talk about. And then the third thing is this. Ask while remaining content in God. So there's this dimension of trust in Him. Ask with humility and confidence. And then the last thing is have contentment as you approach him and as you make your request known to him. And I'll, I'll break this down for you as much as I can. John 16, in verse 24, Jesus says this, Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Quite the statement. Is he talking about throughout all history or just throughout the, his, his life and ministry with the disciples for these three and a half years? Is, is he talking about throughout the disciples' life? What is he talking about? No matter what, what we know he's saying is it's important to ask for things in my name. And that way of approaching the Father through the Son is going to be made possible through the finished work of Jesus. So when I say we need to trust in the finished work of Jesus, you and I go, that's the whole reason I pray, bro. That's the whole reason I'm saved. That's the whole reason I'm righteous. That's why I'm justified. I've trusted in his name. Let's move on from that. No, we don't just trust in the finished work of Jesus for righteousness and justification and eternal life. We trust in the finished work of Jesus while we pray, while we live, while we conduct ourselves and do what God has called us to do. That stays the heartbeat of our life. We don't move on from that. So I, I trusted in Jesus. I did that. Your life, your prayer time, your relationship with God should be built on a growing trust and confidence in what Christ has done for you, which assumes you're growing in a knowledge of what he's done. You're understanding that more each day. As you spend time in the word of God, as you get around other believers, as you spend time in prayer and just seek the Father, the, your understanding of the simple, basic gospel message, the good news of Jesus' kingdom should grow each day so that as you pray in his name, that confidence that is properly placed on him should be growing and should come with you into your prayer time. The problem is there's a lot of believers that have reason to be confident. 
You have all the reason in the universe to be more confident than any other, any unbeliever on the planet. We have more reason to be confident and bold, not prideful, not arrogant, not entitled and have an ego. I'm saying confident. We have more reason in the universe to be confident than every other unbeliever summed up. Put all the unbelievers in a pile and go, take all that confidence. Take all their reason for confidence. We have more. We have more. And his name is Jesus. But if you don't know your reason for confidence, you will be a believer that is born again, has the spirit, has righteousness, has eternal life. And then when you pray, you'll pray sheepishly, timidly, fearfully, with doubts, aware of your sin, plaguing your conscience, approaching God with a sense of condemnation. And that's just the opposite of what God wants us to be doing. That is the complete opposite. So when Jesus says, now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be full. There's a dimension of when specifically the apostles begin to see praying in Jesus' name, effectively working in their life in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles, when they see that there's joy attached to that. And when we pray, and we see God move, and we see the, whoa, Jesus' name is sufficient to pray in, because obviously the Father answered that. When we see that, and our relationship is strengthened, and our confidence is grown, joy comes with that. So we need to understand there is is such a strong need. We are desperate for more awareness of what Christ has really done. We're desperate for that. On a day today basis i need a fresh and deeper understanding and revelation of the gospel because when i pray there are lots of believers you might be praying with confidence but your confidence is misplaced my confidence can be misplaced at times when we talk about the name and and the personhood and the being and and his character and his essence and all these different things his ways and his heart part of that involves understanding how the father now sees me in his son if i don't have that dimension of the father's perspective when i pray then all your intellectual understanding and theology in the world does not matter if it doesn't prompt in you a clearer view of god and the world and yourself it doesn't do you any good so my question becomes why why is it Why is it that so many believers, when they pray, either have misplaced confidence or have no confidence at all to even let a peep out of their, through their lips to the Father because they're so ashamed and condemned and plagued by their past and doubtful and why is that? Why is that? When you talk about the sacrificial system when it comes to Israel and the way that God decided, this is how my people Israel will relate to me. The sacrificial system is usually, usually explained as our gift to God because God needed blood so people could draw near to him. And I'm not going to minimize the dimension of God is holy, God is sacred, and we are bringing Israel, was bringing legitimate gifts and offerings and sacrifices. But you understand the sacrificial system was not as much for God as much as it was for his people. It was a way to allow, this is God's holy habitation that Israel is now entering into. 
God could have said, y'all have no, no right to be here. This is my sacred space. But instead, we see a hospitable, generous, kind, compassionate God open up a way for the nation of Israel to have proximity to him. So this is not the king saying, shut the doors, keep the people out. This is the king saying, no, I want my people to come as close to me as possible, apart from Jesus, which we have, what we have is better, absolutely. But this is the king of the universe saying, no, swing open those doors. Let people come. But there's a way they come without them being decimated by my holiness and sacredness. Because God is set apart and sin can't dwell in his presence and evil can't dwell in the presence of God. And he's just that good. If you get too close to the sun, you burn up. But it's still a good thing. We need the heat. We need the life and the energy that radiates from the sun. God is the same. Not to say the sun is the God, but you know what I mean. The the idea of God being holy and sacred. And if something that is not compatible with his presence gets too close... It's not God that suffers loss. It's that thing that can't dwell in his presence. So God gives the sacrificial system as a gift from him to the nation of Israel to say, this is a gift. This is an opportunity and a way for you to have proximity to my throne room in the tabernacle or the temple. The real issue within the sacrificial system was, of course, you could say proximity to God. They were never as close to God as we are now through the Son and by the Spirit. Absolutely. I would say proximity is definitely a difference between the covenants. But also it's this, and Hebrews touches on this a lot. The sacrificial system with animal sacrifice and approaching through the Levitical priesthood and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, all of that could never actually deal with the conscience of the individual. And you go, why the heck are you going here? Because your conscience, my conscience, has a huge impact on my prayer time and my prayer life and the way I approach God in prayer. Our conscience is a large part of the equation. Meaning this, God can forgive us and say, I declare you forgiven through my son's sacrifice. But what good is it to be forgiven and approach God with a guilty, sin-plagued conscience every time I pray as if I'm approaching him in discouragement with a downcast burden, you know, plagued conscience? What good is that? to be forgiven, yet not see myself the way the Father does. This is, if you're a parent, you understand the battle. You understand the battle when it comes to raising your children to understand that, no, mommy and daddy love you so deeply. We want what is best for you. When we take away a toy or when you get in trouble or when we do something that you don't agree with, we are not trying to ruin your life. We don't hate you like you keep saying, like you've smeared and poop on the wall. Mommy hates me. I'm glad you can spell even though you're two. I, that, that's not the reason mommy and daddy do things. We love you. We want what is best for you. Part of training and rearing children, the, one of the greatest and most difficult things to do is to get your children to understand that you're on their side. To get your kids to understand that you deeply love them and you want what's best for them and you want to benefit them and you want to see them thrive and have an abundant life. They don't always feel that and think that though. 
Sometimes kids feel like you're out to get them. You're out to ruin them. You hate them. You're their enemy. And you're going, no, buddy. If you just saw yourself the way I see you, this would be a different story. And so often, like, maybe even to go a a layer deeper, we go, no, I know God is on my side. I know he's my friend. I I know he has my best interest, interest in mind. You know that. The issue is not with your perception of God. The issue is with your perception of your own self. You see God rightly. And I I understand that the way we see ourselves rightly is in view of God. You have a clearer view of God. You have a clearer view of yourself. I get that. But on paper, you might have a sound doctrinal statement and perfect theology of God. And then when I start telling you, now describe yourself, you start writing things that you know God says is true, but you don't actually see yourself like that. And this goes back to the whole series we did on identity. Part of prayer is understanding not just who God is, but a huge bulk of prayer. The bulk of prayer is understanding not just how, who he is and how he sees me, but seeing myself the way he does. In fact, let me take you to John 14, 6. When Jesus says, well, you guys should already know that one. No. Jesus says, look, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we go, yes. And and so much of this language, looking at these passages, can become self-deprecating. And we're just taking dumps on ourselves all day. I'm unworthy. I'm not. I I should be dead. I should be in hell. And I, I love magnifying the glory of God. I love magnifying His greatness. I love magnifying His grace. But do you have to, like, engage in self-deprecation and hate on yourself to effectively magnify his grace and love? Like, is is God glorified when I sit in what I used to be and go, man, I used to be so dead in sin and an enemy and I was unworthy and I was going to hell and I deserve nothing good and look at all that he's done. Is it, I think there's a sense in which we should remember But to live in that and to let that influence how I approach God in prayer and to let that be the perspective I bring when I approach God through prayer, that's not helpful. So what I recommend instead of self-deprecation is understand that yes, none of us have any right to the Father. We have no, but instead of living in what you used to be to I'm just trying to remain humble and lowly and meek and remember where I came from I'm all about remembering to remain thankful I'm all about that but to live in the past actually can begin to breed a sense of false condemnation a sense of false guilt that plagues your conscience as if you are what you used to be when you're not I would more encourage you to look back periodically don't stay too long But briefly go, that's what I used to be. But let's focus a lot more on who I am now. Now that I have found Jesus the way back to the Father. When we talk about the word confidence, in the English, the word confidence can mean three different things. Look it up on Google. Confidence, I believe, it can be all these things. There's just three different ways to express the idea of confidence. Um, Confidence means the feeling or the belief that, uh, sorry, I'll say, let me backtrack. Confidence is the feeling or the belief 
that one can rely on someone or something. Confidence can also mean a firm trust, the state of feeling certain about the truth of something. Confidence can also mean a feeling of self-assurance that arises from one's own abilities or qualities. So you can have self-confidence. You can have confidence in that chair you're sitting in. You, you don't need to question whether or not it's going to continue holding you up because you actually have confidence that the person who made the chair, the group that made the chair, made it well and the material is sturdy. You're not questioning every couple minutes, is this going to shatter on me? I mean, if you're weird and maybe OCD like me sometimes, you get in those weird thought patterns, maybe. Okay, but the idea of confidence is that something is sure. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. So if I am confident, then I have that feeling of I'm good. This is sturdy. I'm safe based on whatever it is that I'm looking at. So the reason I bring this up is because a lot of us have confidence in the wrong things. The wrong things. Let me take it up before I take it to Proverbs. 1 John 3 tells us this. This is why I'm hammering home the self-condemnation that plagues us when we pray. As if God wants you, before you dare talk to him, as if God wants you to spend at least 10 to 15 minutes uh, wallowing in all of your failure before you can dare approach his holiness. That's a view some of us have from some pretty bad teachings we've received over our lives. Some of us believe, I can't talk to God, and I'm all for confession and repentance. But to think that I can't even talk to him before I've wallowed in my shame enough to, to manufacture a sense of thankfulness and, and he's worthy, that's just wrong. That's twisted. First John 3.21 tells us that condemnation is not from anyone uh, I'll say it like this. Condemnation is not from God. Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus because sin was condemned in the flesh. Meaning any form of punishment that you inflict upon yourself and a lot of our punishment is self-inflicted. A lot of our fear and issues are, are self-inflicted wounds and self-inflicted problems. And I just want to... To, to peel back this layer of when you pray, this is a large part of your prayer life and prayer time, is, is where's your conscience at? Where's your confidence at? And 1 John 3, 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have what before God? Confidence before God. What do you mean? I always have confidence before God. No, you always have reason to be confident before God. Let me distinguish. You can have reason to be confident and still not have confidence because you're not focused on your reason for confidence. And a lot of the times, as believers, like I said, we have all the reason for confidence in the world to approach God. Jesus is your reason. His work on the cross is your reason. His resurrection is, is the reason. His, his paying your debt in full. God's love is the reason for your confidence. But I can choose not to focus on those reasons and choose to focus on other things. F focus on my mistakes, my issues, my, f my, my failures, my sins. 
And then I bring that into my prayer time and I focus on that. And instead of having confidence, which is appropriate, I develop a sense of shame and and unhealthy, conscience-plaguing guilt. But John says, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Meaning that there seems to be a sense in which I choose whether or not to submit to any degree of condemnation that old part of me is trying to bring up and inflict upon me. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Um, that's not necessarily the verse I was looking for. Oh, here it is. It's the verse before it. Sorry. Uh, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Some of you need to hear this. And this isn't for everyone, okay? So if this isn't for you, just tune out. But some of you need to hear, you can't have confidence in prayer if you're not even confident you belong to God yet. You can't. It's not possible. And any sense of confidence you try and manufacture isn't sustainable. So before you can have confidence in prayer to ask for things, to believe for things, to have faith God's going to answer that, you need to know first of all that you belong to Him as a child. That you're born again and loved and treasured and valued and cherished and wanted by God. It's from that place that you can begin to have confidence in your prayer time. So when John says, by this we shall know we're of the truth, you need to know that you're of the truth. You need to know and have your heart reassured before God with the spirit within you, you know, testifying that you're a child of God. You need to have that evidence. You need to have that experience. For whenever our heart condemns us, what's the assumption here? What's the assumption? Not if, but when. When our heart condemns us. How would my own heart condemn me? God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. This is not talking to unbelievers. There would be no need to reassure unbelievers in darkness, dead in sin. You're good. If your heart's condemning you, you're fine. This is talking to believers. By this we shall know we are of the truth. How will I know? How will I have my heart reassured before him? Well, part of that involves understanding that there will be times throughout your life when your heart tries to condemn you. And when your heart tries to condemn you, you don't have to give in to that sense of pressure and condemnation. That and, and again, we can get into some tricky territory when we talk about, God gave me a new heart. I'm confused. If I have a new heart that wants the things of God and desires God, I would just say, in this context, the best way to understand it is that part of you that is fleshly, the old part of you, the dead part of you, that's no longer truly who you are, tries to creep back up and go, you're condemned. God's punishing you. Hurt yourself. Go on timeout. God don't want to talk to you. You shouldn't even read your Bible. You're unworthy. You know what you watched last night. That kind of condemnation. No condemnation is from God when it comes to the believers. So God is greater than our heart. There's a, there has to be an awareness and an understanding that you and I should expect for a degree throughout our lives, a degree of battling with this inner voice that tries to condemn us. Just expect that. But understand that the way you fight that is by giving more focus to and more uh, influence 
to God's voice rather than whatever voice is spiraling within your own head. God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. So there again, there will be times throughout your life where you're praying and for some reason you become keenly aware of all the mistakes you've made in the past that you've repented of, that you've said sorry for, that you've confessed, that you know God's forgiven you of. And it's like your mind is filling up with all this junk at that moment. Instead of letting those thoughts take you for a wild ride on your face across the concrete, you should stop and go, this is not from God. I've confessed this. I've repented of this. I know I'm forgiven of this. God would not bring up what I've already confessed, what I'm forgiven of. There will be a healthy conviction that comes from God. There will be a healthy, healthy guilt that leads someone to repent and confess and and feel a conviction for what they've done. But in those moments where there's this self-inflicted condemnation, we need to learn how to distinguish between that and conviction, first of all. But when that happens... You don't put all your trust and, and hope in what you have done. You have to put it all in what Christ has done. Let me take you to Proverbs 14 to explain what I mean. Remember how I said false confidence? The reason most believers find themselves condemned in life when they pray is because they've misplaced their confidence. What I mean by that is there are a lot of believers walking around, and at times, me too, I have to heart check, but at times, a lot of believers find themselves trusting in their holiness, their church service. They're going to church consistently. They're, they're, they're perfect attendance the last six months going to church. They're reading the Bible. They're leading Bible studies. They trust in those things. Or I haven't looked at that in three months. Or I haven't watched that in two months. Or I've stayed away. Or my mouth is getting better. And I'm not saying things I used to. And now it's all about your performance. And I'm all about celebrating growth. Celebrating transformation and God's work in your life. But that is never my reason for confidently approaching God. I want you to think about that. As believers... It is never going to be God accepting you on the basis of how holy you've been the last week. This is not to knock on holiness and sanctification. Engage in those things. Pursue the standard of Jesus and become as close to him as possible within the life God has given you. But that must never be, and it can never be, your reason for confidence in prayer and in life. Proverbs 14, 26 tells us this. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. What is my strong confidence in? The fear of the Lord? What does that even mean? His children will have a refuge? So both, when he says confidence, you're supposed to think of this idea of a refuge, a safe place from danger and harm. And what you and I need to find refuge from a lot of the times is our own thoughts, our own mental battles, our own struggles inwardly and internally. Those condemning thoughts that plague you at night and keep you up and remind you of what you thought of and what you dreamt about last week and that wasn't really me and and it just tries to keep you trapped in a vicious cycle. That's what we need to find refuge in most of the time. Now, of course, the context for Proverbs 14 is like literally 
You have people who are running from a physical sense of danger. Their life is on the line and they're trying to find a safe place. God is that safe place. But in a more, for this context and for this message, the, you know, the idea of finding confidence and, and finding a safe place and refuge in God and in the fear of the Lord as our sanctuary means that the focus of my mind and my life cannot be all that I'm doing, all that I'm accomplishing, all that I've done, all that I'm seeing. It has to be all that God is, what he's promised, what he's spoken, what he's done, what he's going to do. And then through my life, I'll see him do things like absolutely, but it's never look at all the stuff I'm doing. And then I bring that to God as if that's my resume for him answering my prayers. You ever done that? Come on, don't pretend like you haven't. Every one of us has. Every one of us at some point in our Christian life has brought a bullet point list of all the good I've done this week or this month and I've been holy and I, I obeyed and I gave to the homeless and I went to church when I was sick. Look at all the stuff I've done, God. And we take that bullet point list and we bring it to God and we say this, this is why you should answer my prayers. This is why you're going to answer my prayers. And I'm just trying to get you to understand that that mentality in prayer is not appropriate. That mentality in prayer is not biblical. That way of thinking when we approach God is completely contradictory to the scriptures. The fear of the Lord is our strong confidence. Okay. Hey, real quick, don't forget to head to AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out all of our free resources. All of our Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes, and more. And while you're there, grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, or snag some church merch. You can also find all these links in the video description below. I'm also very excited to announce Above Reproach Ministry Discussion Groups, or ARM Discussion Groups for short. Head to the website if you'd like to see what groups are available near you, or if you'd like to start one in your area, feel free to email me. The first season of video teachings have been compiled into a group study for you and other believers to dive into together. And in the months to come, I hope to have all nine seasons of these video teachings compiled into group studies for y'all to dive into together. We hope this encourages you to meet and grow with other believers to dive into the scriptures as the body of Christ. Well, that is all I have for you. Let's jump back into the message. Is this making sense? I hope it is. This has just been a game changer for me. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10 says, look at what is before your eyes. And I think, before I read this passage, a lot of people confuse confidence with arrogance. I'm not saying be arrogant. I'm not saying be presumptive and have an ego. What I'm saying is be, you can have an appropriate reason for confidence. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to think. Off the top of my head, Jesus is the ultimate. But let me take you to 2 Corinthians 10. There should be confidence that you are God's. That should be a part of the Christian life. Is that I should know and I should be confident that I'm His. The Spirit of God within me testifies. There's a belief in church in some circles and denominations that says, Whoa, you can't know that you belong to God because you might whoop, 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 and you never know, and you can't really be sure, and you got to ride the tide and see if you finish well and finish. I can't know I'm a born-again, spirit-filled child of God with a new nature and a new heart. I can't know. Well, yeah, that's presuming. 
That's arrogant. You can't know. Only God can judge the heart. What is Romans 8 about? What is 1 John about? What is John's, the end of John's gospel about? If I can't know that I belong to him, how would I have confidence for anything else? It might not be his. And that's where some of you are at. Some of you are in between. I don't know if I'm his. And then you try and pray and you wonder why you doubt. You wonder why you can't pray in faith and you don't even, can't even focus on your, what you're saying because you're just thinking about if I die right now and you take away my last breath and I go to hell. That's what you're thinking about. 2 Corinthians 10.7, look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Is Paul, like, against the idea of someone being confident they belong to Jesus? No, he doesn't go, if anyone's confident he belongs to Jesus, fix that. You don't know. He doesn't say that. He goes, look, we are too. Defending his apostolic authority. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may what, boys and girls? That you may what? That you may know that you have eternal life. Like Joshua wrote in the chat, John 17.3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. How can I know someone without knowing that I know them? There's a conscious, intentional dimension to that of, of pursuing relationship and investing, and I'm aware of this. <sighs> so much that I want to say that I'm holding back from saying. You can know you have eternal life. There's a whole point in John's gospel. It's a whole reason he writes First John is so that people can know. I write these things to you who believe. Well, I can't know I believe. Why? Why can't you know? I don't know. I don't know what to look for. Then figure it out. <laughs> well, I don't want to be a fruit inspector my whole life. I don't want you to be either. The Bible doesn't want you to be a constant fruit inspector of your life or others' lives forever either. We, the Bible wants us to get to a place where we are confident. We have enough reason to go, yeah, I, I see evidence of God working in my life. I'm, I'm confident he's mine. I'm confident I'm his. I know what Christ has done for me. But there's layers to this. I could peel it back even more and say, look, some of us are so obsessed with fruit inspecting. And some of you in the chat are going like, what do I look for? Give me the evidence. I want to know I'm his. It's, I used to be. Hmm, I used to be more about the evidence of fruit in one's life. And I'll never diminish that and say, that doesn't matter. But I've come to a place in my faith where if you were, a, if you were like struggling with your faith and you came to me and you said, look, I don't know if I'm Jesus's. I don't know if I truly believe. I don't know if I'm, I belong to God as a child. I used to go, well, let's think about all the things God has done through your life. Do you see the fruits of the Spirit? Do you see evidence inwardly of the Spirit of God working in you? Do you see a, a healthy guilt, a conviction of sin? Do you see a, a, a growing desire for the things of God? Do you see a growing hatred for things that are anti-God? And based on what they would, if they would check all the boxes, then I'd go, oh, why would you doubt? And I made a mistake in doing that. I made a mistake in letting people's confidence be in the evidence in their life rather than their confidence being very simply in the one who accomplished their salvation and righteousness. 
There's a difference between our reason for salvation and our fruit and evidence of salvation. I don't think, biblically, my confidence should ever be in the evidence of my salvation and the fruit of my salvation. I just don't. What I see is continue remaining steadfast, confident, hopeful, and focused on Jesus. He is your reason for salvation. He's your reason for confidence. He's your reason for confidence. You can have all the evidence in the world. And I go, whoa. You've got to be a believer. But I wouldn't approach it that way. I would say keep your eyes on him. And don't let your confidence slowly drift off of him and onto the things that he's doing in your life as if this is why I'm saved. This is why God hears my prayers. This is why I'm a believer. It is so hard to be confident in prayer when you're not even sure you're God's child. Confidence in prayer comes from knowing Jesus. Not from seeing evidence of holiness and sanctification, which those things are fantastic. That's what the Spirit of God will produce in your life. But that is not your reason for confidence, period, ever. Some people would disagree, and I would continue to push back even stronger. Let me show you a few verses. This was, a, this was going to be... It's so crazy you posted that, Nancy. This is literally the next verse. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. <laughs> We're on the, you and me. That's funny. You guys need to understand, this was just going to be a message on prayer, but I, I, we could go through all the seminars and conferences and instructional classes in the world on prayer. We can, re, we can pray in Hebrew. You can pray in Greek. You can pray in nine different languages. You can have your prayers formatted by Scripture itself. But if as you're doing and praying and asking for those things, your conscience plagues you, and you don't understand what it means to be confident as you approach God. What good is that? Go ahead and pray in Hebrew. Go ahead and pray in Greek. Go ahead and make these high lofty prayers in, in nine different languages. I don't care. My concern is not just that you know what to pray for and how to pray you know, verbally. What language do I use? But that you would know how to approach God in prayer. And that my friends, is confidence rooted in Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 says this. Just read this passage for yourself. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, of course, this specifically written to the Hebrew people, but the beautiful splatter effect is on the Gentiles as well. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Let me ask you something. When you pray, what is your mind focused on? When you're asking God for things, when you make your request, when you're going through scripture to go, what is the will of God as I pray these things? What is your focus? Is it the finished work of Jesus that is your confidence? Or are you rehearsing all the good that you've done as if this is why God's going to answer. Come on, God, look at my resume. Consider what I've done. And, and there is a dimension of, is psalmist praise like this, or, um, I don't know, mainly the psalms, where it's like, consider what your servant has done, and consider what I've, what, what your servant has done for your people. There, there's a dimension of, hey, God, 
I'm approaching you in faith and confidence in you. Um, but it's attached to a life of holiness as well. So part of being confident in Jesus and praying in his name means having a life that is consistent with the heartbeat of your prayers. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which means to approach the Father through the Son and His work, by the new and living way He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, I'm going to highlight everything in green that is our confidence. The new and living way, His fleshly sacrifice, Him being the great high priest. That, all of that, when you pray, and not to make this some exhaustive mental discipline or task. Not trying to make it that. But just the next time you pray, rehearse these things. The blood of Jesus. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus. The person of Jesus. The promises of God. Jesus, my great high priest. And all these things. Let that compel you and move you to approach God in faith and confidence. Since we have a great high priest, here's what we should do. Let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You can't really know. You can't be fully sure. You can't be certain. That's arrogance. That is presumption, young man. Okay. Why does the author of Hebrews tell us to draw near to God, whether this be in faith in Jesus for the initial work of salvation or in prayer or any other time I approach God through the Son, why does he say to have a full assurance of faith? You can't be fully sure. Do you understand what faith is? It's trust. It's trusting. And when I trust someone truthfully, that will breed confidence in me. Do you understand? These two ideas cannot be disconnected. You cannot disconnect confidence from trust and vice versa. When you trust him more, confidence will, be, will result from that. If you want more confidence, you need to grow in trust, which requires you to have more history and experience with God and seek him in his word and know his ways and know his heart and invest into your relationship to see how trustworthy he is. Full assurance of faith. I'm not going to break down all these different things because this is just for making the point of confidence. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Who is your hope? What is your hope when you pray? I'm not asking for justification and righteousness. I'm asking when you pray. Where is your hope and your confidence invested in? Where is it aimed at? Without wavering, you know what that emphasizes once again? The dimension of full assurance. Do you know why? He who promised is faithful. This is the key to all of it. Why can I approach God? Why can I know that I'm saved from the wrath of God? Why can I know that my sin is paid for? Why can I know I'm born again, a child of God, filled with the Spirit, a new creation, and I belong to Him? Why can I know? Because He promised. All He says is, take Him at His word. He promised. So this is not an issue of what God has said. This is an issue of, of, of who he is. This is an issue of God's character. Do you trust 
that he is who he says he is? And therefore, do you trust he'll do what he says he'll do? That's your hope. If he says he accomplished your righteousness and your salvation and your atonement through the Son, then he did it. And it's on us to either take him at his word and live like it and pray like it or not. Let's keep going. Hebrews 9. 9 through 14. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are off. I just want you to think about the conscience aspect. Our conscience has been washed. So many people try so hard to worship God and pray and do good moral things in his name with a plagued conscience. And my prayer for you is that today you would live like your conscience is clean. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They only deal with food and drink. Okay, this is the issue with one of the issues with the old setup without Jesus. The conscience of the worshiper can't be clean, can't be perfected. Do you see it? So if you want your conscience perfected and your prayers to reflect that, that comes through faith in Jesus. There has to be an absolute assurance, confidence, which assumes you have the information and the knowledge for that to effectively have this ability to approach God without anything plaguing my conscience. There was a time in my life I know I look 12, been around for some time. There was a time in my life where I would pray, and the minute I'd start praying, or a couple minutes into my prayer time, like a floodgate, all the sins and mistakes and issues and, and evil thoughts and desires of my past had just come flooding in. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, you can confess and repent and move on, or you can wallow in that, and go, no, I need, to, I need to show sorrow and sit here and, and weep. And there's a time for weeping over sin, but self-deprecation and self-condemnation and self-inflicted, you know, that stuff, that's not from God. Live like your conscience is clean. Go on. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, uh, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all. Where's our confidence, boys and girls? If you were to literally see the glory of the Father in his unapproachable, radiant light and glory, and you approached him, you approached him, and then you saw the Son, like literally, if you saw him literally at the right hand of the Father, whether that's just symbolic, if you saw him, you would not approach the Father on the basis of all the good that you've done and go, now's my chance. Father, Here's why I need you to answer my prayer, and here's why I think you will. Look at all the stuff. I fed the homeless. I didn't yell at my sister this week, and she even took my car without asking. I was driving through Burger King, and the drive through and that guy did not treat me right. I held my, my tongue. Like, ooh, I had nine different roasts all lined up for that one guy, and I chose not to. So, God, this is why you'll answer. I don't think we would be going through our resume if we saw Jesus alongside the Father. 
I think rather our focus would just be, we would be laser focused on the sun and go, he's everything. He's the only reason I can approach you. That must be the heartbeat of your prayer, is that he entered once for all. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What is your hope, joy, confidence to pray rooted in his sacrifice, his promises, his character? How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works? to serve the living God. What do you and I need to do to effectively serve God? Apparently, you need your conscience purified from dead works, which doesn't just include sin, moral evil, separation from God, but also any sense of self-righteousness. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? That's our hopes. That is our hopes. That's our confidence when we pray. I'm talking like I'm closing, but I'm just meditating with you. I'm thinking through this how often Jesus is not our focus in prayer, how often he's not our reason for confidence in prayer, how often we live like our conscience is really not purified when all, in all reality, God says, no, you're cleansed. So come near and pray like you can be bold. Boldness comes from knowledge of the Holy One. Hebrews 7, to quote A.W. Tozer's book, Not like a statement from the book, but the title itself. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. If I can get it to highlight. A better hope. We have hope to approach God. We have hope to draw near to God in prayer. We have hope that he will do what is good with our prayer request. We have hope that he can answer. And Jesus is our better hope. It has to be that way. And it wasn't without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. This one, however, was made with an oath by the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Speaking of Jesus, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he... He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Boom. Two more reasons to be confident. Notice how this has nothing to do with what I can do or what I know or what I've accomplished or what I'm gifted in. His priesthood is permanent. He continues forever. He establishes a better covenant. God has sworn and made an oath and a promise about his son that I can either take him at his word on or not. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is whole verse right here. 
whoever would draw near to God must do these two things. This is, this is like what prayer is going to look like. You're going to believe that God exists as you're praying. And you're going to believe that he rewards those who seek him. Matthew chapter 6. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to find and receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Do you want mercy and grace to live life, persevere, and endure? God knows what's coming our way. It's going to be through approaching the throne of grace. Well, I don't know how to do that. You need confidence. I don't know how to manufacture that. You focus on him. You recall his promises. You rehearse his work on the cross. You thank God for what he has said and he's promised about his son and what his son has done for you. That will begin to breed a healthy, appropriate sense of confidence to bring your requests to God. This is not just for the discouraged and the downcast. This is for people who have misplaced confidence in their prayer time. And you're wondering, why don't I see God doing what I believe? Maybe because that false sense of confidence is leading you to desire for and ask for things that aren't in accordance with His will. I've seen that in my own life. Where when you misplace confidence... That actually affects what you desire and how you do things and what you go after. Ephesians 3.12 says, We have boldness in Jesus and we have access with confidence through our faith in Him. We have no idea. <laughs> like we really don't. You could, you could write a million books and be the scholar of scholars and the theologian of theologians. You and I have no idea. How much reason for confidence we really have. And Jesus, if I were to show you your confidence equals, it would just be Jesus on the other side. It wouldn't be Jesus plus your holiness. It wouldn't be Jesus plus your good works. It wouldn't be Jesus plus all the good I'm trying to do and how I held my tongue and I didn't blow up and, and I know a lot about the Bible and I'm leading Bible studies. It would not be Jesus plus anything. We have boldness and confidence because of Jesus. Yeshua is the salvation of God. God is salvation. And you either take him at his word or you don't. And you either let that come into your prayer times and influence how you approach God or you don't. And I can't make you confident. You can't make yourself confident. What you can do is grow in your understanding and knowledge of the one who makes you confident. John 14, 13 through 14, we already looked at, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when we pray, when we approach God, we pray in Jesus' name. Meaning, I don't just pray with a trust and a confidence in His work, His promises, His character. But praying in His name apparently has to do with the Son being glorified. And that's another dimension of prayer people fail to talk about is that praying in Jesus' name is not slapping that sound or that word onto whatever it is I'm requesting. Praying in his name, which go watch the last episode on the name of God if you want a deeper understanding on that. 
But praying in his name also includes praying for what honors and glorifies his name most. God, what pleases you? Father, what actually glorifies you? What honors your name? What what makes your reputation known in the earth? What is an accurate reflection of your character? I want to pray for that. It's not just confidence. And then I take that confidence and go, I believe you're going to give me anything I want. You pray for the things that God leads you by his spirit to pray for, which will always glorify and honor his son. James 4.3 tells us very directly, at least the dispersed Jews, you ask and you don't receive dispersed believing Jews because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now again, we see the splatter effect. Yes, initially addressed specifically to believing Jews dispersed. And hopefully unbelieving ones would also get circulation of this to see how good Jesus is. But we get the splatter effect as believing Gentiles. The wisdom principle is there are so many things people are asking for that they're not receiving. Not necessarily because it's inherently the wrong thing, but maybe because they're going about it and asking for it the wrong way. And they're asking for it with wrong reasons and wrong intentions. And therefore, God knows if I give this to them, though it is a good thing I intend to give them, it's not going to be good for them. So I'm going to wait. When we pray, we often just consider, is this good? Will you let me have this? Right? And part of prayer is understanding that you can pray for the right thing at the wrong time. And that actually makes it the wrong thing. So there's timing attached to this whole thing. And, and, and some people, this isn't about timing necessarily, but it's about asking wrongly with the wrong motives, with the wrong ambition, with the wrong heart and attitude and goal. You just want to spend on your passions. And there might be a dimension of, that's just the wrong thing to ask for. Sure, sure. But I think a lot of the times... It can actually be a good thing in and of itself. It's not bad. It's not neutral. It's actually good. And somehow my own selfish ambitions and icky desires have perverted that request so that now when I bring it before God, it's not this inherently good thing. It's been tainted by, I intend to use it for bad. I have bad motives for asking. My goal for asking for this in the long run, is evil, and God won't give those things to people who ask with wrong motives and wrong intentions, such as, I just want to spend on my passions. We have to grow up. We have to mature a little more than just asking for things that benefit us. We have to mature past that point. So when we pray, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name, confidence in his work, faith in his promises in his word and also i'm praying for what honors and glorifies god most as much as i can tell based on what i've gathered from scripture do you even weigh these things in prayer do you consider these things that's a good question the second thing to note is when we pray we're to ask in faith and confidence paired with humility now back to the definition of confidence confidence being the feeling or belief that one can rely on something or someone It's firm trust, right, in the English dictionary. The state of feeling certain about a truth or something. A feeling of self-assurance that can arise from one's own abilities or qualities. So again, you can have self-confidence. 
We are confident and certain about what Jesus has done for us and what he says. So when Jesus says things like this, Hey, when you pray, have faith in God. Or James 1, 5 and 6, If anyone lacks wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But, hey, here's the kicker. Let him ask in faith. What's that mean? No doubting. Oh, that's hard. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That's hard, right? Thank you, John, for that gift. That's hard. But there's a call to pray in faith. Well, I don't want to be presumptive. I don't want to assume God will give me. We're not assuming. There's no assumption and presumption and arrogance and ego as part of this. This is praying in faith. Your faith is not in you. Your faith is in him. Okay, so I can just, anything I can imagine. If I just believe God will give that to me, he will. This is where we get into some dicey territory. No. Because there's a bunch of qualifiers that fit the request that God intends to answer. Does it honor his name? Is it according to his word? Does it glorify his character? Does it advance his kingdom? Does it advance the gospel? Does it benefit people? Is it in trust? All these different things. So when we go, well, I can just pray in faith, believe God's going to give it to me. He'll give me anything. This is not, again, the presumptive faith that assumes God's going to give me that because I'm entitled. Uh, strip entitlement out of this. Strip any sense of purely benefiting me alone. Strip that out of your prayers. And you got biblical godly faith that is not selfishly ambitious, prideful, arrogant, entitled. We want to strip all of that out. And we want to be left with nothing but trust in God's ability and his character. That's faith. I trust you can and I trust you are good I don't know if you're absolutely guaranteed going to do what it is that I'm requesting unless it's explicitly stated in God's word as such, but I believe you can. 1 John 5, I already read it. This is the confidence we have towards Jesus. Let me, let me bring in a 2 Samuel 7. This is an interesting one. Came across this, I forget when. Um... 2 Samuel 7, 27. David's prayer of gratitude. Yes. So this is in response to God saying, you want to build me a house? I'll build you a house. And David goes, whoa. And David begins praying out of gratefulness. And he's going, Lord, what? Your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God of Israel. Um, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, watch, watch, this might be a helpful clarifying verse for some of you that are like, I'm so confused. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you've made this revelation to your servant. This is what the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan. I will build you a house. Okay, that's what the Lord said to David. Now David can say, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Meaning, what is David's courage to pray and faith in God rooted in? What is it in response to? It's in response to what God has said. 
So when I say have faith, I'm not saying have faith in your own imagination. I'm not saying have faith in what your own mind has conjured up for God to do. Anything I imagine, God, you're going to do it because I have faith. No, it's trusting in what he said. And does your request, does your prayer align with what he's revealed about himself and what he said in his word? If not, I should have no courage to pray for and believe for that thing. God, I'm believing you're going to get me nine wives. That's freaking weird, man. I don't think you should have faith to pray for nine different wives. Or God, I, I just have faith that you're going to give us, I don't know, three billion dollars so that I could start a company that's just going to uh, hire people and abuse them as workhorses and, and, and God, I'm going to not even honor your name. I'm just going to cheat on my taxes. I don't think you should find courage to have faith for that. That ain't nothing God intends to give you. And you go, well, that's doubt. No, that's an accurate reading of God's word, friend. Is the character of God informs what I pray for and what I ask for. And here's the humble aspect. You go, there's the confidence, where's the humility? We can never separate the two. If I'm going to be biblically confident, if I'm going to be properly, honorably confident and, and full of faith, it always must be paired with humility, which is not self-deprecation, which is not a hatred of oneself, which is not a beating oneself up and minimizing oneself, but it's seeing yourself in light of God. This is the best way I can explain from my own understanding of what humility is. It's going to, or what is going to result in humility, what's going to cause humility, is I'm going to see my life, myself, in light of who God is. And that will breed the proper humility, a lowliness, a gentleness, a meekness, a, a preferring one above myself, a using my life to benefit others. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. This is not thinking uh, less of yourself. This is thinking of yourself less. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Did Jesus not do that? Did God in the flesh not do that? Demonstrate perfectly model humility for us? So that should be a part of my prayer. Yes, I'm confident. Yes, I have faith. But there's this dimension of humbly approaching God and even considering others at times in my prayers even more important than myself. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We can go verse after verse on humility. But humility, proper humility, biblical humility, is never without proper confidence and faith. Where you will find one, you'll always find the other. Where someone truly trusts in God and has confidence in God, there will be a humility that you'll see with that person or vice versa. The last thing is this. We don't just pray in faith and trust and confidence and humility as we approach God. But whatever we ask for, whatever we believe for, don't think that I will be more satisfied and more fulfilled when I get that answered prayer. That's not the right way to look at it. 
you don't have more reason for joy, hope, peace, satisfaction, or anything else. You don't have any more reason for those things when you get your answered prayer. So we are not praying with this idea in mind that says, God, if you just answer this prayer, then I'll finally be able to, or then I can see real joy, then I'll have real hope, and none of those things are attached to circumstances. Actually, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, something that will frustrate people, just countercultural, man. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, he's thanking the Philippian church for sending him a financial gift. I'm not speaking of being in need. Uh, I might have had needs, but I wasn't living in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Well, quite the statement. Ah, he's just exaggerating. Ah, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we go, amen. Especially considering the thorn in the flesh he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, right? Where Paul talks about, yep, I prayed three times, pleaded three times, let the persecutions and the issues around me stop. Take it away. And God answers, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul goes, if that's the case, if God's grace is sufficient, if I can be content in all circumstances, if I always have access to God himself through faith, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, which these weaknesses being things that are out of his control that he can do nothing about. He's helplessly cornered, back up against the wall, can't change the situation. Specifically, persecutions are in mind and fleshly struggles, physical sufferings. So the power of Christ may rest on me. I am content with these things. Now let me ask you something. If Paul was praying to get out of prison, if Paul was praying, take away these, this thorn in my flesh, does it seem as though maybe, maybe initially, Paul was like, I can be content once you take this thorn away. And then something shifted when God said, my grace is sufficient for you now. Not, le- not just later, not just in the past. And not when you get a certain situation to fall in place. My grace is sufficient for you now. Is there a chance that maybe something shifted in Paul's heart to go, then I will stop asking because I'm content. Not once you answer my prayer, but even if you don't. That's the kind of contentment I'm talking about. That's the kind of contentment I'm talking about. It doesn't mean we stop asking for things, you know, oh, whatever happens, man, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. We go, no, God can change things. But even if he doesn't, on my timetable or in my way, or in a way that benefits me personally. I'm content because he's enough. If you can't pray and ask for the things you are begging God for and desiring for him to do, if you can't pray with a heart of contentment, then I would definitely begin to ask God for contentment. That might be a focus of my prayers. Last passage, then we're done. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, and since he is, to me, what no one else can be, I won't live in want. I won't live wanting things. I won't live waiting for the ideal situation or waiting for my prayers to be answered to really be happy and satisfied. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And if that can become enough for you, you can learn how to make requests and ask for things and pray for things with this heart that isn't unhealthily attached to those things happening. He makes me lie down. You can go down the line in Psalm 23. Here's why I shall not want. We'll just read this for fun. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There's rest. He leads me beside still waters. There's direction and guidance. He restores my soul. There's replenishing and restoration. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Right? There's clarity. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So there's the presence or even the shadow of what appears to be death. Terrible circumstances, dark valleys, but the presence of God in the midst of that. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, so there's comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. This sounds like the idea of Moses calling the people out of Egypt and going, Pharaoh, we just want to go a three days journey to hold a feast before the Lord. In the wilderness, surrounded by enemy nations, you prepare a table before me. There's abundance. There's joy. There's dining. There's provision in the midst of enemies in the wilderness. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's that abundance. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. There's the goodness and mercy of God behind you. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's acceptance and there's welcoming. All of these things begin to give you a picture of why you can be content, even if God doesn't answer. So this is where we, praying in faith becomes a little of a tight walk rope, tight rope walk. (sighs) Because we want to pray in faith, but I don't want to presume. I want to believe and have confidence But I don't want to, I don't know, believe for the wrong things, right? And I think the way we balance that and make sure we don't fall into the unhealthy extreme of treating God as a genie or a cosmic vending machine is that we remain content even if he doesn't. And that is not something you figure out once he doesn't answer. That's something you can decide to have and know that you have before he even gives you his answer. Yes or no, doesn't matter. You're sufficient. You're enough. My heart is not attached to some future experience in this life, apart from new creation. My joy and hope and peace and satisfaction are not attached to some future scenario in this life. It's not attached to you answering a request. It's all attached to you. So the way that we ask for things in Jesus' name in Matthew 6 to end this whole thing because we're using Matthew 6 as the framework and the outline this is the requesting part right after worship and praise and thanksgiving and adoration and your kingdom come and surrendering to his will give us today our daily bread and this is specifically addressing the needs for today
what I need today. No more, no less. I ain't worrying about tomorrow. I'm planning for the future, but I ain't stressing about what tomorrow brings or what might happen here in America. If you're in America, give me today. I'm asking for what you know I need today. And I'll ask in your name. I'll ask for everything else that I believe centers around your word and your kingdom with confidence and trust in what you've done and your promises with a sense of humility and boldness at the same time and with contentment. So that even if you don't, Lord, even if you don't, you're enough. You're enough. All right. Whatever it is that you are meant to reflect on and think through for yourself, go do that. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit abovereproachministry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the new believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys. And as always, keep moving towards Jesus. 